Um, Let's listen to God's word. So Luke 7, beginning at verse 36 through to the end of the chapter. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Good morning. Now then, for anyone who doesn't know me very well, uh, I became a Christian in probably my late teens. And as a teenager, I decided that I was going to do a a gap year with the church, like an apprenticeship. Now, I was full of enthusiasm, but I've got to be honest, I had very little knowledge. Um, I I was a bit of a well-armed fool. But (laughs) right at the beginning of this year, I was involved in an evangelistic event at the church. Now, there was going to be a guest speaker who was going to come, Uh, He was going to come and deliver a talk. And at the end, he was going to give what what we call in the church an altar call. So he was going to call anyone forward who wanted to make a commitment based on what they'd heard. Now, that's where I came in. My job was to to go up and to pray with anyone who'd come forward wanting to make some kind of commitment. Now, before the service started, we were given these little cards with a prayer we were supposed to go through with anyone who came up. It was a prayer of forgiveness. And I remember looking at this prayer and thinking, really? Really? This is where you want to start, with forgiveness, right at the beginning. 
Surely wouldn't we be better talking about God's love, God's faithfulness, being adopted into God's family? Surely if we start with forgiveness, we're going to put people off. You see, saying sorry isn't something that we find very easy. Any of you who've got children will know that from a very young age, we're wired to not want to say sorry. I've got two little girls of my own, and it is a daily struggle just getting them to admit any kind of fault, let alone say sorry. Not so long ago, I remember they were both playing in the other room. I had to go through because Bella, the younger of the two, started crying quite loudly. When I walked in there, Grace, uh, the older sister, she was standing there with this huge stick, waving it around her head like this. And before I said anything, I just looked at her, and with a guilty look on her face, she said, I didn't hit her with the stick. (laughs) We, We just don't like to say sorry. You see, repentance can be hard for numerous different reasons. For some people, the idea of forgiveness is difficult because they can't see how anyone would forgive them. They can't see how, with all they've done in their past and all they continue to do, they feel so ashamed to even talk about what they've done, let alone say sorry for it. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, there are people who feel like they find forgiveness difficult because, really, they can't see what they've got to say sorry for. They look at other people and they compare themselves to them and think, do you know what, I'm not as bad as that person. I'm certainly better than they are. Well, as we look at today's passage in Luke, we'll see characters from both of those camps. And we'll see how Jesus firstly shows us and reminds us that no one is beyond God's forgiveness. That Jesus came to rescue sinners and heal the broken. He'll then go on to teach us that it's only when we realise how much we've been forgiven that we can really love him like we were made to. So with these things in mind, let's turn our attention to to Luke. Now in the the previous chapters of Luke, we've seen over over previous weeks how Jesus has really been hanging around with the real down and outs of society. I'm sure his disciples were beginning to get pretty frustrated, thinking, come on, when are we going to get our message to the right kinds of people? When are we going to speak to the people with social influence? Then out of the blue in chapter 7, we see that Jesus is invited to Simon's house a Pharisee. Now the disciples must have been delighted thinking this is it. This is when we're going to get Jesus into the room with the right kinds of people. Now Jesus enters Simon's house and as was the custom he reclines at the table ready to eat. Now the table would have been low to the ground and there would have been benches coming away from the table. If you kind of imagine spokes coming away from a wheel You'd lie down at the table, uh, the bench, and your head would be at the table end. Your feet would be going away from you. I'm sure all eyes were on him, particularly the disciples, wondering, how is Jesus going to act in front of this important crowd? But then things don't go quite as planned. Another character enters the story. Luke describes a woman as a sinner who enters the room. Now, the general consensus among scholars is this woman was probably a prostitute. And if she wasn't, she was certainly someone who was very public in her sin. She enters the room and she sits down behind Jesus, sobbing uncontrollably. Now her presence in the room alone would have caused some serious upset. I'm sure there were a lot of people who would rather she wasn't there. But things quickly get even worse. This woman begins to take down her hair. Now this really is too much now. I mean, for us today... This is completely lost on us, but in Israel 2,000 years ago, this was unthinkable. It really would have caused no more offence if she'd taken her top off. It's that kind of level that we're talking about. 
If this woman had been married, taking her hair down in public would have been grounds for divorce. She then goes on to wash Jesus' feet with her tears. She dries them with her hair and then she takes this expensive bottle of perfume and she pours it all over his feet. Now for Simon, this completely confirms everything that he suspected about Jesus. I'm sure he was thinking, if Jesus really was a prophet, or for that matter, anyone who is worthy of hearing my, having my ear, he would know who this woman is. He would know that she's unclean, that she should be pushed away. Jesus, knowing this, turns to Simon and says, Simon, I've got something to tell you. He goes on to tell him the parable of the two debtors. If you look at uh, verse 41, this is what he says to him. He says, two people owed money lend- a moneylender, cer- sorry, two people owed money to a mo- certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Now, anyone here who's ever led a Bible study will know that if you ask a question which is too obvious, people are really reluctant to answer. Everyone knows the answer, but everyone's sitting there thinking, there's definitely a catch here. I'm not being the one to stand up and say, it's this. It's usually Jesus is the answer. But people get really nervous about it. I think that must be what's going through Simon's head. He senses some kind of trap. Look at his answer in the next verse. I suppose the one with the greater debt... Of course it is. It's an obvious question. I'm sure he uh, let out a sigh of relief when Jesus responded, you have judged correctly, Simon. However, he wouldn't have been sitting comfortably for long. Jesus then asks, do you see this woman? Now again, to Simon, I'm sure this was another obvious question, which probably had a catch. Of course he saw this woman. He found this woman's uh, presence in the house offensive. Since she'd arrived, he's been trying to look elsewhere, but all he could see is this woman causing a scene. Now, this time, Jesus doesn't wait for Simon's answer. Instead, he goes on to lay out all the ways in which this so-called sinful woman has treated him better than Simon has. She washed Jesus' feet where Simon had not even given Jesus water to wash his own feet. She smothered his feet with kisses. Simon didn't even greet Jesus at the door with a kiss. She's poured this expensive bottle of perfume all over, uh, over Jesus' feet. Simon didn't anoint Jesus with oil when he came in. Now to us today, this woman's behaviour seems really quite bizarre. But throughout the whole Bible, I really believe you will struggle to find a more intimate act of worship. When this woman enters the room... Jesus is all that she can see. The judgmental, harsh looks of everyone else in that room are completely lost on her because she has the approval of Jesus. She utterly loves Jesus. This is exactly the kind of worship that Jesus wants from us. He wants us to be so preoccupied with his greatness that the rest of the world almost fades into the background. He wants us to love him so much that he captures our emotions and that we fall at his feet. Now this woman had lived a life of very outward sin. She would have been considered the lowest of the low. As people went past her, they'd have probably written her off as not being good enough, as being beyond the grace of God. Her whole life, I'm sure she felt the crushing weight of her sin. 
to the point she was defined by her sin and referred to as a sinful woman. Now, no matter how hard you become to hearing that, I'm sure it's crushing to be defined as not being good enough. Then she meets Jesus in whatever way she hears his message and she worships him. At great personal cost, Jesus forgives this woman, knowing that in the very near future he would have to go to the cross for her to pay for every wrong thing she'd ever done. Jesus then looks at her and no longer does he see her sin, he sees his sacrifice. The huge debt that she could never have paid has been written off with a huge red stamp saying, paid in full. Not only is this woman no longer in debt, she is rich beyond her wildest dreams. So what is her response to this? Well, she throws herself at Jesus' feet. This woman, who had now given up her old way of life because she's realised she was made for so much more than this. Now, the likelihood is, if she was a prostitute, this would leave her without any income. But what does she go on to do? She takes this expensive bottle of perfume, which was very likely the most expensive thing she owned, and instead of keeping it or trying to sell it, what does she do with it? She decides it's best used to try and make Jesus smell sweet. What an incredible act of worship. She's left herself completely dependent upon Jesus. We're going to sing a song at the end of the service that goes, Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. Every time I hear this song, I just imagine her writing it. She's left herself completely dependent upon Jesus. He is all that she has, yet she's still singing hallelujah. The question for us today then is what stops us loving Jesus like this woman does? Why is it that our response to Jesus is so often cold and calculated instead of adoration and love like this woman? Well, look at verse 47. That's where you'll find the answer. It says... Jesus says, therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. What here is the prerequisite of love? It's recognising that your sins are forgiven. She's recognised that she was living under a death sentence. But that now, because of Jesus, it's been lifted. She responds in the most natural way that she can. This woman doesn't hype herself up somehow to worship. It's simply an unstoppable overflow of her heart. Now to some, this woman's story brings great joy and a great encouragement that no one is beyond God's forgiveness. That if we repent, God is faithful to forgive us. But to others, it leaves a slightly bitter question. Look at the end of verse 47. Jesus continues, whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. So what do we make of this? Does this mean that to really love God, like this woman does, we need to have gone off the rails? Should we perhaps here at Emmanuel Epsom advocate a short stretch of drug dealing? Maybe prostitution? Why don't we all go out and commit a murder and then next week when we come back we'll really have something weighty to ask forgiveness for? Well, clearly that's not the answer. So, so what is? Well, to answer that question, I think we need to look at Simon. I'm sure that's the way he probably felt. We need to take a closer look at his response and we need to take a closer look at what sin is. 
And then we need to consider whether actually the debt of sin which we have is perhaps higher than we first thought. Now I'm sure that when Simon heard the parable of the two debtors, he quickly made the assumption that it was mainly directed at this sinful woman. That she was definitely the 500 denarii debtor and he was, well perhaps reluctantly, he would concede that he had a small debt. But the important thing was, his debt was a lot lower than hers was. Well, I think the first question we need to ask is, can we really be sure that it was Simon who had the lower debt? For Simon, his view of sin, and if we're honest, a lot of the time our own, is that sin is about rule breaking. If you keep the rules, you're not sinning. But that shows a fundamental misunderstanding of what sin is. Sinning is more than just rule breaking. The heart of sin is a failure to treasure God above all things. It's an attempt to live independently of him. Now if you look at the woman's life, her sin is very obvious and very outward. She ignores God and she ignores his rules. She lives the life she wants to apart from God. But for Simon, his his sin is far more subtle. He follows the rules in an attempt to earn favour with God so that he won't have to depend upon God's forgiveness. The incredible irony of Simon's obsession with not sinning is it's born out of a sinful desire. A desire to be independent from God, a desire to earn the praise of man and a desire to look down on other people. This all too often can be the case for us as well. Even our actions which outwardly appear to be good can often be fueled by sinful motives. I look at my own life. How many times have I to ha- offered to help out in church? Not because of an overflow of thanks for all that God's done for me, but because I want other people to think I'm good. In that moment when I think that, I treasure the praise of man more than I treasure God himself. Even though on the face of it, my actions look good, they're fueled by a sinful motive. When we really start to meditate on what motivates our actions, we begin to see that we're a lot more sinful than we thought we were. Let me suggest a second reason as well why Simon may have had a greater debt of sin than the woman. Now if you continue to read Luke, you'll see when we get to chapter 12 that Jesus makes it very clear that sinning when you know who you're sinning against and that what you're doing is wrong, it's worse than someone who sins in ignorance. Let me read you Luke chapter 12, verse 47 and 48. Jesus says this, The servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Take another look at the two characters who meet Jesus. A Pharisee and a prostitute. Now on the face of it, the prostitute would be the one who is far more sinful. However, it is still the case when we stop to consider who had a greater understanding of God, who knew him better and all that he'd done. Now I don't know the specifics of this woman's background, but I'm a police officer and that means I often work with her modern day equivalents. 
Now, to say that the vast majority of these people come from a dysfunctional background would be a huge understatement. There's one story I've often reflected on, and that's of a man who I've dealt with numerous times over my 10 years as a police officer. He's what we call in the police a PPO, a prolific priority offender. Now, this guy, he is violent without prejudice. He preys on the weakest people in society. And you know that if you're going to have to arrest him, nine times out of ten, it's going to end up in a massive fight. One of the times I dealt with him, there was an unusually long wait after arrest, waiting for a cell to become available. And for whatever reason, he decided he wanted to talk. He started telling me about his childhood. He started telling me how, when he was young, his dad used to beat him and his brother black and blue. But then he would make them watch as he went on to beat his mother and sexually assault her in front of him. It's awful, but I mean, this man went on to make some terrible life choices, and I'm not trying to defend them. The things he's done have been wrong. But really, is it any great surprise? When a so-called sinner commits a sexual or violent crime, often they haven't had to battle against their conscience in the same way that um, someone who knows God and what God wants has. They simply acted in the way that's been modelled to them, in the way that they've learned from others. By contrast, when a person who knows God and has known God most of their lives, a person who's been surrounded by people teaching them God's law, who spends time reading the Bible, who spends time in prayer, when that person sins, more often than not, they are deliberately turning their back on God. They are sinning, knowing what they're doing is wrong. Now, Charles Spurgeon, he, he explains this idea a lot better than I could. I'm going to read you a short excerpt of a, of a sermon he preached. This was over 100 years ago. He preached this in November 1906, but it's still so true today. This is what he said to his congregation. Will you not admit that a sin committed against light and knowledge is far worse than a sin of ignorance? If a man should offend, offend against the law of the land, not knowing it to be the law... His offence would not be as gross as that of another man who, understanding what the law is, deliberately sets himself in opposition to it. It may be that some of those upon whom you have looked down on as owing God 500 pence have been without the light that you have had. Probably the most of them never had the privileges that you have enjoyed. Did not your godly mother pray over you from your very birth? Did not your anxious father diligently instruct you in the way of salvation? You've read the Bible. You have a tolerably clear notion of what is right and what is wrong. So you have sinned in the light. You have sinned knowing it to be sin. May not, therefore, your little sins, as you see them, really be more heinous in the sight of God than those apparently greater sins which others have committed without the same degree of light and knowledge that you have had. Now hopefully it's beginning to sink in that perhaps we are more sinful than we first considered. But before we move on, let me just consider one more point. When we hear the parable of the two debtors, we can concentrate so much on the two different levels of debt, we miss the crucial point, which is in verse 42. Neither of the debtors had the money to pay back what they owed. Now, in ancient culture, if you were unable to pay your debts, you'd be chucked in prison. It didn't matter how much that debt was for, prison was the consequence of not being able to pay. 
In the same way, when we sin by not treasuring God above all things, by trying to live independently of him, it doesn't matter how we've done that. The consequences are the same. The Bible tells us the wages of sin are death. The truth is we are all in a mess that we cannot get out of. Without God's intervention and grace, we are completely hopeless and left without any hope. Thank God that's not the end of the story. You may be starting to think, come on, Dave, I didn't come to church this morning to hear you go on and on about how bad I am, trying to tell me I'm worse than I thought I was when I came in. So why have I done it? Why have I spent a considerable amount of time trying to convince you that our sin is worse than we think it is? Well, let's reread verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. You see, I haven't been telling you that your sin is worse than you thought, so that you go out of here downbeat and dejected. dejected. I've been trying to remind us just how much we've got to thank God for. One of the greatest traps we can fall into as a Christian is thinking, I'm not that bad. Comparing ourselves to others, thinking, I'm actually all right. If we honestly believe that we're not that bad, we'll never love Jesus like we were made to love him, like this woman loves him. The kind of love which brings joy and hope. The kind of love which completely transforms our lives. It changes all of our priorities. The kind of love which transforms us from someone with a lukewarm faith to someone who loves Jesus with all of their heart. Sometimes I find myself frustrated looking at other Christians who have a far deeper faith than my own. I keep trying to figure out what is it that they've got that I haven't? How do they love Jesus so much? Well, let me repeat a question I asked earlier. What is the prerequisite of loving Jesus? It's realising that your many sins are forgiven. You see, to be someone who loves Jesus more than anything else, we have to realise how much we've been forgiven. We have to, to realise that we've been rescued by a loving God and we did nothing to deserve this rescue. We have to realise that we have a huge debt of sin that we could never pay and it's been written off by Christ crucified. God dying in our place. That's what's so easy to forget about a debt being written off. We imagine it just vanishing. But in reality, when a debt is written off, someone, somewhere, has to be out of pocket. Someone has to fork out. In this case, the cost is far more than we could ever imagine. The Holy One of God, Jesus Christ, coming to earth, living the life that we could never live, and then dying the death that we deserve. Before I finish this morning, I just want to highlight one more thing about this woman's act of worship. This bottle of perfume that she takes, this hugely expensive bottle of perfume, a bottle which I'm sure only a few days earlier, she valued far more highly than she valued Jesus. But she takes it and she literally pours it at Jesus' feet. This is where so often I fall, where we so often fall. There's that one thing which we value more than Jesus. That one object or feeling or behaviour or person, whatever it is, 
that we value more than we value him. We try to pour at his feet, but we can't. Now you can try and use a sense of duty or logic or whatever it is to try and surrender it because you know it's the right thing to do, but that will always fail. It's only when we realise, it's only, it's only when we realise the weight of the sin that's been lifted from us that we can take that item and pour it at Jesus' feet. It's only when we take what's most valuable to us that we realise we can surrender it because first, God took what was most valuable to him, Jesus, and he poured him out at our feet. He died in our place. Just imagine for a minute being on death row, sitting there knowing there is nothing you can do, that your execution is completely inevitable. Then imagine someone stepping into the cell with you, saying, don't worry, I'll take your place. You're free to go. This is why the woman was able to take what was most valuable to her and pour it at Jesus' feet. Because first, God took what was most valuable to him and, poured it, and gave it for us. If you want to love God more than anything else, you first have to realise that you've been forgiven more than you could ever imagine. Don't try and compare yourselves to others. Don't take comfort in the, in the fact that your sin might not look as bad as others. Recognise that you've committed cosmic treason against the only true king by not treasuring him above all things, by trying to live independently of him. Realise that you have a huge debt that you cannot pay on your own. Then realise that a loving God has paid that debt himself so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be freed. When we really begin to understand this, that's when we can love Jesus like this woman does. Just look at the very last verse of this, uh, of this chapter. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You see, that's the key thing to take away today, this morning. It's that we're not to be beaten up by our sin. We need to recognise how great it is. But then we need to realise that we've been forgiven and rejoice in that. And that's when we can go in peace. That's where peace comes from. Peace doesn't come from pretending you have no sin. Peace comes from realising that you've been made right with the maker of the universe. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, the famous song goes... Amazing grace that saved the wretch like me. Lord, we've all sung that probably numerous times before. But we skirt over the fact, Lord, that it's a wretch that's been saved. Lord Jesus, I confess that I am a wretch, that I have tried to live independently of you. I've looked around the world and I've tried to pick stuff out which I treasure more than you do, Lord. I've sinned against you more than I can begin to count. Thank you so much that despite that, you came to the earth and you died in my place, Lord. That you died in our place. Thank you, Lord, that if we ask for your forgiveness, you are faithful to forgive us. Jesus, I pray that as we recognise just how much we've been forgiven, it would spur us on to love you more than anything else. It would spur us on to live a life of love for you. Please change our hearts, Lord. Change us from someone who approaches you like Simon to someone who approaches you like this woman. 
a grateful sinner, Lord, because that's all we are. We're no better than anybody else here at this church, Lord. We've just realised that we have mucked up and we've got into a mess we cannot get out of. And we are forever and eternally grateful for the one who saved us. Jesus, thank you. Amen.